May all this be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The context um, of the story tonight, um, and it's in um, Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you may want to just be able to reference some stuff there. Um, If you're taking notes, it's also in Matthew chapter 14, in Mark chapter 6, and in John chapter 6. Um, These are four accounts of the same story. The context of it is, um, is one of exhaustion and hunger which I'm sure many college students experience a lot. Um, of, 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 but the, the, this is how this exhaustion and hunger plays out. It's, a, it's an exhaustion and hunger that, that, that sort of makes you want to be alone and cared for, but you're not even sure how it's going to happen or where the end of the, the line is. Of wanting to be asked to do something that you're not even sure you're capable of doing. And I suspect, like I said, the circumstances and history of our lives allow us to relate pretty easily to this kind of context as we begin to think about it. Jesus' friends were totally wiped out. They just returned from being sent into villages. If you're, if you're tracking with like sort of Bible language and Christianese, in Luke's gospel, this is when they go from being disciples, which means students, students of Jesus. That's all disciple means, student. This is when they go from being disciples, which I guess they always are, to being apostles. An apostle is somebody who's sent out. That's what that means sent out. Because Jesus had just sent the 12 disciples out to all these villages in Galilee to proclaim the kingdom of God. And if you don't know, the kingdom of God is what Jesus spoke about more than anything else. What it's like and how we can come to share in it. And I encourage you to pay attention to that theme as you encounter scriptures for the rest of your life. What's the kingdom of God like? How can I share in it? This is what Jesus talks about more than anything else in the gospel accounts, the kingdom. And the disciples had just returned from talking about this kingdom all over the region. And when they come back, they're, they're really tired. And they've received terrible news. News that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and very good friend, had been killed. He'd actually been beheaded by a local ruler named Herod, and there's rumors that Herod was now going to start going after Jesus and what he, was, what he was doing. And so they're wiped out from work and mourning the death of their friend. And Jesus says to them, let's get away to rest and be alone. Jesus, this is Jesus' idea. Let's get, a, let's get away to rest and be alone. So much has been going on, and so many people have been coming and going that we haven't even had time to eat. And so Jesus and the disciples, they go off on the water to a nearby desolate place. You ever feel like that? Like what you want more than anything else is a desolate place? I know that some of our lives we spend just trying to escape desolation. I know that. But it does feel to me like so much of our lives are just one or the other. (laughs) Like I I just want to get out of this and and be with people. And other times all I want is, is to be in a place where everything's at peace and quiet and the demands and the droning on of the world leaves me alone just for a minute. This is what the disciples want after their hard work and traveling and mourning the death of a friend. And Jesus wants it for them, a desolate place. And so they sail off just a few miles down the coast. And while they're on the water, the Sea of Galilee, the crowds see them and follow them from the shore. And imagine that, right? Sailing out on the waters towards some quiet area. Like we get in a boat and we're going to go a couple miles down there. There's, it's outside sort of the main parts of the village on this little hillside next to the sea. We're going to head over there, okay? And you look off to your left and you see thousands of people off in the distance kind of tracking you on the hillside. 
getting ready to meet you for whenever you land. And by the time Jesus gets to shore, the crowds are already there. And you know what happened when he saw them? Jesus' idea, right? We're going to go off to be by ourselves to a desolate place. And these thousands and thousands of people on the shore are, are going to meet him where he lands. And so hungry and exhausted, Jesus was both just looking for a place to be alone. Do you know what happened when he saw them? As Jesus looks out at these people in that moment, in a very needy mess of a crowd, he has compassion on them. Compassion. The word passion gets a ton of play in our culture today. What are you passionate about? Like it gets asked all the time. I'm really passionate about writing, you know, or whatever. Okay, well, well the, word, the word passion literally means to suffer. That's what the word passion means. I know we don't really use it that way. Typically, when we use the word passion, we just mean something we're excited about, okay? But the, the word originally me meant to suffer. So if you said, I'm passionate about racial reconciliation, and what you mean is, I have strong positive inner feelings about racial reconciliation, that, whatever, okay? Like, um, if on the other hand, what you mean is, I'm willing to actually suffer to see racial reconciliation happen. Do you see that difference? Like passion is sort of the colloquial use of it. It's just I'm excited about it, I have good feelings about it, but, but it's sort of the, 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 the historic use of it and even what it means in our, in our uh, dictionaries today. Like if you were to talk about the passion of Christ, what that, if you ever hear that phrase, that doesn't mean um, the really excited feelings Jesus has about things. That means his suffering. So that means his suffering. If, if, you're, if you're talking about you're your, uh, passionate for writing, do you mean by that that you're willing to suffer, to let it be a great cost to you to write? I wish we would just use the word passion like that. Like, I wish that's what we meant. That if I said, I'm really passionate about my family, that that didn't just mean I like them a lot. That meant I'm willing to, to, to have it be a cost to me. I'm willing for my, my family is worth suffering. I'm willing to, to have other things taxed for them. Like, does that make sense, what that means? Okay, this is important because when it, when it says Jesus had compassion on them, it's related to this word suffering. Literally, the word means to suffer, right? And so compassion means to suffer with, right? You got, I mean, I'm hoping you guys in college know this, right? C-O, co, as a prefix on a word, means to come alongside of or to be with. So like cosine means to sign with, right? Or co-conspirator means you shouldn't have been doing something with somebody. Or coexist means we live together. Like you put co on the front of a word, it means with or alongside it. You guys with, you guys with me there? That should be pretty obvious, I think. Okay, so if, if, if it means, if co means it's just to be with or alongside of, and passion means to suffer, having compassion means that you are suffering alongside of people. You are suffering with them. That's what it means. Jesus had compassion on the crowds, and what that means is that he identified with their suffering, and he came alongside them at a cost to himself. That's what that means. So in the midst of him being exhausted and tired and hungry and thousands of people waiting for him at just the place where he thought he was going to get to rest, he has compassion on them and it costs to himself. He identifies with their suffering and suffers along with them. And do you know what they were suffering from? We're told that he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, wandering not protected, unsure of where to go, unable to provide for their own needs without direction. 
I wonder if some of you can maybe imagine that. <laughs> that you're not really sure about where to go and what to do in life. You know, just wishing someone could help point you in the right direction and provide you with some safety and some guidance. Maybe some of you can identify with that. Um, well, this is what Jesus noticed in that crowd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were suffering without leadership and without someone to provide for them and protect them. And he had compassion upon them. And so he began to teach them about the kingdom of God and heal any of them who were sick. And the day wore on. And the hours just kept ticking by. And you can imagine as the stories are written, you can almost see like the, the time-lapse video of the sun trailing across the sky. And it was getting late when the disciples, who are incidentally silent in the story up till now, and I think as we get in this, you'll, you can imagine why. They approach Jesus and they don't say Lord or Master or Teacher. They say, send them away. Send them away. It's late and the people need food and a place to stay tonight. And then here's, here's the kicker, right? And besides, this is a desolate place. You see what they're doing there? Jesus, you told us we were going into a desolate place. This is one that these people are wrecking it. Thousands of them. You, you're the one who invited us to come here. Send them away because they're hungry and they need some food. They need a place to stay. And this is a desolate place. There's at least a hint of frustration here. They've been busy and they're worn out and hungry and the whole thing they've been looking forward to is some peace and quiet and instead they're standing in a crowd of thousands. And so they remind Jesus, this is the place that we sought out. Send the crowd away so we can have what we need. Send the crowd away so they can eat. You feed them, Jesus says. In the Greek, that word you is really emphatic. There's a way that it's emphasized. You feed them, is what he says. And what are we supposed to do, is the response. What are we supposed to do? Spend like five to $10,000 in food? Even if we could, it wouldn't fill them up. This is their response to him. You feed them. What are we supposed to do? Spend thousands of dollars? Even if we spent that much money, it wouldn't even feed them. It wouldn't fill them up, right? So Jesus says, well, how much food do you have? Well, this boy over here has like five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. And that is not them trying to help. That's not them providing a hopeful comment. That's like someone asking if you have any quarters for a parking meter, and you say, I've got a couple pennies. That's the same thing as saying no. You, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's never helpful for you to say, I got a couple pennies. Like, why does that matter? You just know is the answer. But, but, but we don't like to be negative or something, and so it's more passive-aggressive to be like, I got some pennies. Uh, and it, this is kind of like that. Like, five loaves and a couple of fish is like that. It's just a lot more significant because it's thousands of people who are hungry. It's not a parking meter, okay? Um, that, that's what that answer is like, though. Thousands. I mean, I, I think because it's like a Bible story and we're so used to not, we're so used to like our eyes rolling back in our heads if you've grown up in a church or something like that or are glazing over or just like, I don't know if we actually can imagine what at minimum five, maybe upwards of 10 or 15,000, thousand people gathered together in a sea, like around this sort of seashore area with not a lot nearby, hungry, and it's late in the day and it's probably like a little dusty and dirty and there's grass, so it's probably the spring. But like, I don't know how hot it would be, but nobody's comfortable. And they're like, thousands of people. I mean, we got five loaves of bread and a couple of fish. That's what they say. Rather than being deterred or realizing the disciples' point, that they didn't have the resources to feed the people. 
That's what the disciples are saying. I think Jesus has also got to know, because it's, they're probably laying it on thick, that in some ways they probably don't even care about everybody being fed. What they care about is just getting their desolate place for themselves. And Jesus tells them to feed those people. M- maybe even by his command, calling to life uh, some compassion in them, maybe. I don't know. But so when they say the five loaves and some fish, which I don't know what they expect Jesus to do after he says, after they say that, probably, okay, we'll send them away. Here's what he says, five loaves and fish? All right, get everybody together in groups of 50. (laughs) Jesus, thousands of people. He said, get everybody together in groups of 50. And I I mean, and and we're told they they do, exasperated. I mean, what are you going to do? I don't know. Jesus says get people in groups of 50 after he's cast out demons and raise people from the dead. I don't know. Maybe we get people into groups of 50. I don't know. Okay. Um, And when this was done, Jesus took those loaves of bread and those two fish, and he said a blessing over them. He broke the bread, and he handed it to the disciples, and he told them to feed the crowd. And everyone ate and was satisfied. And when everyone had eaten, the disciples collected what was left, and there were 12 baskets of bread left over. Somewhere in there, a miracle happened. Somewhere. We have no idea how. Like, people have actually done a lot of this, the kind of stuff I read and prep, preparing for a sermon is debates about whether or not the loaves of bread, like, kept manifesting themselves in the hands of Jesus, or like when he handed it to the disciples, they were just like, like, kept, like, doing this in their hands, or like he broke it and then they would go like, bloop, and grow into new ones again. Like, <laughs> like, very smart people spend years arguing these kinds of things. It's very interesting. Um, for me, it's interesting. For most people, it's a total bore, I'm sure. Um, we actually have no idea how this happened. So little time in this story is devoted to the miracle itself. The gospel writers give way more attention to the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples than to the miracle. Think about that. The, the, the gospel writers, all four of them, they give way more attention to the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples than to the miracle itself. And it's not an accident. You see, first reading this story, I was moved by how Jesus makes space for compassion. How when he's interrupted, he responds in kindness. Who among us does that? Who among us, when they're interrupted, when we're cut in front of in line or on the freeway, when you're, when you're going home to go into your room and you're interrupted, when you get into a great conversation with a friend and then the other person sits down. Who among us, when they're interrupted, responds with kindness? Who does that? Especially when we're hungry or angry or lonely or tired. Halt. You've, I hope you've all heard of that. It's fantastic advice. When someone is hungry, left to right, I don't know, that's left to right. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. H-A-L-T. Halt. Don't have intense conversations or press any issues, right? When any of those things are present, halt what you're doing, address the hunger or the anger or, or the loneliness or the tiredness. Like, that's very, very, very good wisdom for romance, for friendships, for just generally dealing with people. The reason why it's such good wisdom is because when we're feeling any of those things, we do not respond well. Jesus notices the crowd when he's at least, at least hungry and tired, maybe lonely, because he was going to spend time with his father in prayer is what he was doing. He notices the crowd and he has compassion on them. This is who our God is. This is what he's like. He shares their burden and he meets their needs. He makes space for compassion. And notice, this is me um, 
taking some liberties here for just a second. Notice how he does this in the story. This is how Jesus shares his compassion with them. He tells them about his kingdom, he heals them, and he feeds them, all three. He teaches, he heals, and he feeds. Many of us have come from traditions which stress only one of these things, and we need at least all three. So some of us might come from traditions where we want to give tracts to people who are starving. Or we want to see miraculous external signs in the life of someone who's never put on the character of Christ. Or we want to meet all of someone's physical needs, only to never tell them about the one who can bring them triumph and death and satisfaction in life. Because you guys, I've got to know by now, you should be old enough to know right now, that you are hungry three times a day, at least. I'm hungry like seven. But if you feed somebody, they get hungry again. If you stop somebody, what person have we stopped from dying in this moment who lived forever? Many of us come from traditions where we stress like one of these three things. When Christ would teach and heal and feed. In Jesus' compassion, he does all of these things. His compassion is comprehensive, friends. This is true and it's what our God is like. What business or social club or group of friends promises that kind of thing? What, what, what is actually that good and what even promises to be that good? Who would even dare to make promises like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest? Who even has the gall to say that? It's a totally different thing if it's like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. It's my hope that you find rest. That's not what Jesus says. I will give it to you, is what he says. This is what our God is like. He makes space in his compassion to meet our needs and to satisfy them comprehensively. I noticed that first reading through the story, but something stuck with me because of how much time was spent in the dialogue versus how much time was spent on the actual miracle itself. There's something else Jesus makes space for in this story, and it's what's given far more attention than that miracle. And I think it's that Jesus makes space to show off a little bit. It's late. They're in the middle of nowhere. There are thousands of people. So many people that six months of wages, which is about what we think that the, the 200 denarii, would, would, that's, the, the, that's what you would read in the text. You read 200 denarii, and the equivalent is something like six months' worth of wages. There's so many people that six months' worth of, wa- worth of wages would not feed everybody. Peter says that in the Gospel of John. And all they can find is some cheap food, which would feed just like a family or two. And in that absurdly dim circumstance, Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. And I know what he's doing when he says that. When my kids think that they can, st- I, I don't mean to sound angry, this is, I, 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 just, I don't know. If you guys aren't parents, it's hard for me to express like the degree of, um, well, I'll just tell you what happens. You can figure it out. So there's many times my kids want to do something they can't do. And I can sometimes fight with them on it, right? But often one of the best things I can do is I go, okay, try. Go ahead. Give it a shot. I can do it myself, Daddy. Okay. And I'm saying it with a degree of, you know, Seinfeld, you know, patronization to them. Um, okay. Um, there's just like a sense in which I, that's a super old reference. None of you guys, you, your grandparents watch Seinfeld, I know. Um, anyway, uh, but I say this to my kids, and the hope when I say that to them often is not that they're like, that they, my son tries to open a thing and he can't, and he starts crying, and he hates his life and realizes that he's f- a failure, 
This happened yesterday with, um, they got this little thing. It's a, it's, this is, this is my life. They, they have like these little um, vials of slime. I don't know where they got them. They have tons of them. Um, and they can't open the lids. And it's annoying because I have to open them all the time. Like my wife stopped by the library. Um, I do a lot of sermon writing in the library. And so she stopped by there after the kids came home from school or back from school to say hi to me. Um, so I could see the kids tonight because I don't, I don't go home on Tuesday nights, right? Um, and so I, I, I reached through the window and I put my hand um, very platonically on my wife's leg although it doesn't need to be platonic because she's my wife. Um, and I was like, ooh, what's that? And it was slime. Um, there was like slime on her leg, but it's like room temperature and she can't feel it. You know what I mean? And it was grossed me out. Um, and I look in the back and my kids have like tons of it and they're going like, hachoo, and like pink slime. And, you know, and this is, this is my life, right? Well, my kids can't open the little vials. And so they're like, Daddy, will you open it? And every time you open it, you get it on yourself, you know, so it's a little annoying. And why do people make things that kids can't open like that? I don't know. But, um, but so they can't do it, but still my kids will sometimes say, no, 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 let me try. And I'm like, you've tried like 20 times. Like, you're not going to be able to do this. Uh, and, and so and I, I'm not going to argue with them because it just turns into a fight. And they're going to never, ever think that, um, that they're going to think I don't understand them and I don't know them and, and I don't know what they can do. And so one of the best things for me to do is just let them try. Let them try, and what they'll experience is they'll experience the limitations that they have. That, that, that metaphor only plays uh, so far, right? Because some, sometimes why I let my kids try things is because they can discover new things, and they can learn, and they can grow, right? So that metaphor doesn't totally work, but there's lots of times where I will tell my kids, go ahead. It's a little bit like, I don't want you to touch that because it's hot, but okay. I'll go get the aloe and the bandages, you know, like kind of thing. And I think when Jesus says to his disciples, you feed them, that's a little bit of what he's doing. He's waiting for them to realize that they need help and hoping that they'll accept it. He knows that they can't. They've just told him their plans. They've told him, have them go somewhere else. We don't have enough money. There's not enough food. You feed them, is what he says. Instead of asking him for help and bringing to him whatever they have, they look at their limitations around them and try to come up with other plans. And in that process, what happens is they come face to face with all of the ways in which they do not have enough to do what they need to do. And Jesus makes space for that. For them to realize their own limitations, that they don't have the money, they don't have the time, they don't have the food. And how many of us are looking at limited resources in our lives in some way, shape, or form, and doing the math and we just can't see how it'll work. Friends, God does not need your intelligence, your great ideas, your money, your humor, your looks, your really hard work in order to accomplish his purposes. He created the universe out of nothing. He made you from scratch, and he feeds thousands of people with a sack lunch. And the invitation, if all you've got is like a, a paltry lame sack lunch. If that's all you've got, the invitation is just bring him the sack lunch. If you're looking at your resources, if you're looking at your talents, and it's probably helpful right now if you could imagine an area of your life where you think you don't have enough, where you don't have enough for the grades, for the relationship, for the opportunity, for the respect, for the whatever it is, where you're looking at your resources, your talent, your money, your personality, your family, your history, 
that, that you're not good enough or that you've messed up too much. And because of whatever that, that sort of inventory check is of your life, you think that God cannot accomplish in you all that He's promised. You're wrong. He doesn't need you to be someone else. He doesn't need you to fix yourself up or for you to give Him some other plans for your life. He wants you to bring whatever you've got and just watch Him work. He makes space to demonstrate His compassion in our lives, and He can do a lot with a little, and He really likes showing off. There's one more thing I want to point out tonight, and I don't have time to get into this too much, but I actually looked through all the rest of the sermons this semester, like the, the passages of Scripture, and I don't know if this will um, find its way into other stuff, and so I'm just, I, I want to make sure I at least bring this up and just introduce this. The disciples were exhausted, hungry, and, inv- and invited by God Himself to get a little time away. I know some people in this room will say things like, I really feel like God, you know, is really wanting me to do this, or, you know, God told me to do this. Some of us use language like that pretty freely. This is a a situation where God actually told them verbally to come away and rest, right? Like, Like, we all heard him say that. He got in a boat, told us to follow him, desolate place. God told me, like, legit, that actually happened, right? And then their plans got all screwed up, and everything that they wanted for themselves everything that they wanted for themselves, which were fine things, by the way. Wanting rest, wanting to be fed, wanting some time alone to recover, great things. These things that they wanted for themselves, Jesus provided for others through them. Let me say that again. All these things that they wanted for themselves, Jesus provided for others through them. Compassion, healing, nourishment. And it's my suspicion that we should probably keep our eyes open to this kind of thing in our lives. Pretty often, whatever we're wanting most, God gives us the ability to provide some of that for another person. If I'm lonely and I just want someone to care about me, this is not the kind of thing we often say out loud, but if that's what I'm feeling, I'm just feeling lonely and I want someone to care about me, just, just so you know this, I'm pretty powerless to actually make that happen. Like, I I can't make you know me, and I can't make you care for me. I just have these desires for those to be met, right? I can't address my own loneliness, but I can recognize that others might feel like I do, and I can come alongside of them and care for them. Do you see that? When I most desperately want friends, I wouldn't be surprised if God invites me to be a good friend to other people. When I most desperately want help, I would not be surprised if God invited me to help others. I actually wonder if Aaron, that day that he showed up at my house, I wonder if like the night before, I've never asked him, he probably wouldn't remember, I don't know, but I wonder if he was like, he, I wonder if he wished people would come to him and he realized in that moment he can't make that happen, but he sure as hell could go to somebody else. It wouldn't surprise me. Pretty often, whatever we're wanting most, God actually gives us the ability to provide some of that for others. That's what happened that day for the disciples. And I imagine that God is inviting all of us into something like this, realizing our limitations, going to Him for help, and tending to the needs of others. Now, the disciples got a lot of time with Jesus. There were 12 baskets of food left over. They had more time with Him later. But on the front end and even in the middle of that, actually, we know later, they were, they were riding on the boat when Jesus starts walking on water and they were grumbling because they didn't understand. Literally, they were pissed because they didn't get it. Not like they didn't get the theology. They were like, the the text would tell us they didn't know how he did that with the bread. 
they, they, they miss it because of their hard heart, right? And Jesus was still providing for them some of the stuff that they needed in the midst of him using them to meet the needs of others too. Friends, I don't know, let me just, let me say this, I gotta wrap it up. I, I don't know what you think is impossible given your limitations. When you look at the limitations you have in your life, I don't know what you think is possible. Where you might be like me, like curled up in the corner of a house in tears or something, I don't know. Where you feel like you don't have enough, where you need to feed thousands and all you feel like you have is a sack lunch. I know that Jesus makes space for compassion, but I also know he makes space to do the impossible with whatever we have. And what he asks is that whatever you have, you bring it to him. That you lift your eyes from your limitations and that you come to the compassionate one who can do so much with so little. This is what he makes space for in our lives. This is what he's inviting us into. And it's not just to meet your needs. It's also to meet the needs of others through you. And if you haven't discovered this yet, this is one of the most tremendous ways that we get to actually know Jesus. By being like him and being along with him in his work. If you want to get to know me, there's something that we can do like sitting down at a table and like looking at each other and talking. But there's a lot more that we can get to know by being alongside each other, doing things together. One of the reasons like a ministry like this will do like retreats and missions and hiking trips on, on top of all the other like first order businesses behind those things, it's also the fact that intimacy is often developed on the way. And when Jesus makes space for compassion, one of the things he's doing probably for each and every one of us is inviting you into his passionate work for others. And if you are not letting God do that work through you, then I have, I have no doubt that you feel pretty estranged from him. This is what he's inviting you to do, though. You might just have a sack lunch. Just bring it to him and see what he can do with it, okay? Easier said than done. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I know every single person in this room you made on purpose. And you know the raw materials that each person in this room has to deal with. You know the limitations better than any of us do. And none of us even know our limitations as much as you do. And yet you have extended an invitation to each and every person in this room for eternal life, entrance into your kingdom, resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. You've offered them a new family. You've offered to make us new. So we ask that your spirit would, would help us to believe that, that the work of your son is true and good, that you bring about the things you promised for us. Make us a people who bring what we have to you. And um, Father, you know it is our prayer. And I know for our leadership here, I know the students that are leaders in this place, and our staff, it is our prayer that we are people who demonstrate your compassion in this, on this campus. Help us to see how you might be inviting us into that work. Um, would you receive our praise right now? Um, take pleasure in it. We love you. In Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.